It is great to be back with you again this morning. Um, I'm going to be finishing this Advent series um, here at Ascension. So I'll be here this week and next week. Um, so you guys know what you have to persevere through. And you guys will be better people for persevering through my preaching. Um, today we are going to be looking at how glory descends in the work of Christ. Um, and particularly looking at it through these first three verses of the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent Christ, that indeed he performs so many wonderful offices, so many wonderful works for us. Um, and it's all out of grace, Lord. We did not deserve any of them. Lord, I pray that you will just help my words align to your divine word here. And if I should say anything that is not from you, I pray that you will just close my mouth or close the ears of those listening, um, that your word will be proclaimed truly and accurately, and that we will get a more exalted picture of Christ. And even in the descending glory, that it will transform us. And we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen. The church has a tradition that in the wake of tragedy, they would gather, that we would gather for worship. Because there are some things that happen in this world that we can't make sense of. But what's amazing is that we proclaim that Christ meets us in the midst of tragedy, in the moments of pain, where we have nothing else to do but cry and weep. That even as we think in this Advent season that 2,000 years ago, amidst the cries of parents whose children were being slaughtered, that a child was born who promises to wipe away every tear from their eyes. That he cries alongside us, but he gives us hope, and he tells us that he will wipe away every tear. Um, and that's what I want us to do. We might not be able to make sense of what happened in Connecticut this past week, but I want us to look at Christ, an exalted picture of him, um, and sometimes that is enough to give us the comfort we need. Um, so it's very fitting, I think, in this Advent season that as we look at the office of Christ, um, that we see it as, as a way of that God gives us comfort. And we might not be able to make sense of it, but the comfort is true and it is good. So traditionally, the work of Christ has been divided into three different sort of offices, how he performs as a prophet, how he performs as a priest, how he performs as a king, prophet, priest, and king. And we see all three of those offices very um, implicitly in this text, and that it weaves them all together, that he perfectly fulfills each one of them. So we're going to be looking at each one of these offices. First, the office of prophet. The first thing that the author of Hebrews does is he contrasts Jesus as a prophet with, with the previous forms of revelation. With what happens in the Old Testament, long ago at many ways and in many, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, God used the various institutions, persons, offices, prophet, priests, kings, festivals, types, um, to reveal truth about him. Now, these, these, these things, these ways that God has revealed himself, weren't just theological jargon or ideologies or good ideas. But as one theologian says, they were intoxicating flesh and blood symbols of the creation. He spoke to us in very concrete ways through these things. But they were all looking forward, looking forward to the ultimate revelation that would come in his son. And what's interesting is that this doesn't just contrast the way that revelation occurred in the Old Testament. When you look at what Jesus does as a prophet, it contrasts with every other world religion. Think about it. Every other world religion says that you need to be either this moral, this in line, this, uh, this educated to know what God is like, to understand him, that, that you could understand him through philosophy or through art or through spirituality. But what Christianity affirms is that no, God's disclosed himself to us. He condescended from eternal glory to reveal himself to us. One of my favorite illustrations of this is uh, Dorothy Sayers. Um, and I've heard this numerous times, and I love it. Um, Dorothy Sayers was a uh, writer of fiction detective novels. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, and she wrote these series of detective novels with this main detective, Peter Whimsey. Now, halfway through the series of detective novels, he meets this woman, Harriet Vane. Now, Harriet was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She wrote detective novels, um, and eventually these two fell in love, got married, and lived happily ever after. So what happened? Well, Dorothy created this character, created this world that Peter was in, that he lived in, and she, she loved him. But the only way that Peter would ever know of his creator is if she wrote herself into his story. And that's what the story of the incarnation is, but so much more. Not that he just wrote himself into the story, but that God immersed himself into this redemptive history, came to be with us, alongside us. And that is one of the most beautiful things to see. And we see that when he came to us, look at the form that he came to be with us as. It's what we celebrate during this Advent season. He came as a person came in the form of a baby. He just didn't come perfectly glorified as he probably had every right to do, but he came as a child. And what's amazing is that, think about what this communicates to us. When we look at the Old Testament, see what God's presence was like, it was an absolutely terrifying thing. When he appeared to Abraham, he was the smoldering pot. I don't even know what that means. When he appeared to Moses, he said that no man could see his face and live. When he appeared to Job, he was this tornado of fire. In Isaiah, he has this vision of the throne room of God, and there's these huge cherubim with wings that are floating up, and he is just absolutely terrified. His response is, I am undone. Every single one of those things was overwhelming. It's hard to look at that presence of God. But the way he comes to us, as a child, where the most proper response to do with a child is to just embrace it. That there is nothing threatening, nothing that is hard for us, that as we look at God as a child, that that's how he, does, that's how he reveals himself to us. That he condescended 
from eternal glory to identify with us. The metaphysical became physical. The eternal entered into the temporal. The creator enters into the creation. And that's why when we look at Jesus, as it says in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what type of God that we worship, look at Jesus. Look at his son. And I think that's one of the most amazing things that at the end of Mark's gospel, when it's talking about Jesus on the cross in chapter 15, he says that he uttered his uh, with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Um, now, why am I bringing this up? Because it deals with revelation, with what we know about God. See, the temple was this barrier in the temple where the, the presence of God dwelt, where no man could go in there and live. Um, that only one day a year, on the most holy day, the high priest would go in there and make a sacrifice. Um, and that was it. But when Christ came and died, that veil was torn from top to bottom so that God could look at us and know that our sin was taken care of. And not only that, but that we know surely what God is like in his son. That it opens up this way that we know what God's like and God can know us and embrace us. The greatest prophetic revelation ever was done in God's descending with us. But it's more than him just being a great and the ultimate prophet He's also the greatest priest. And we see that in verse 3, where he's talking about how he makes purification for sins. Now, the purpose of the priest was one of intercession. It was one of atonement. It was one of reconciliation. That they represented the people to God. That they pronounced blessing and benediction on the people of God. That they mediated this special relationship, this covenant between these people and God. And one way they did this was by sacrifice. And these sacrifices were ultimately a substitution. That these sacrifices of being a bull, a goat, a lamb, doves, flour, wine, and oil would pay the penalty deserved for the people's sin. Now, all of these things were good, but they were never final. They were never ultimate. They would always have to be repeated. Um, but they were good because what they were was... It was God's way of teaching people all throughout the Old Testament of what Jesus would do when he came, of how he would pay for our sins, how he would bring about that final uh, reconciliation. And he is. He is both a better priest and a better sacrifice. Rather than merely representing us, he became one of us. He took the malediction of God so that we could receive the blessings of God. That he completely transformed the nature of this covenant so that we knew that it would be a final covenant. One that would be perfect in every sense because we had a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice that was representing us. Now how is he not only just a better priest, but a better sacrifice? Well, what was the requirements of the sacrifices? Well, that they would be perfect that they would be without any type of spot or without any type of blemishes. Um, and that's ultimately what Jesus was. He was perfect in his life. He was without sin. He was without blemish. Um, and he took our spots. Um, and that's one of those things that's at the crux of the good news of the gospel. But it's also a very weighty thing. It's a very tragic thing. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien coined a word. He talked about a catastrophe, E-U catastrophe. Now, when we think of a catastrophe, we know that's where everything falls apart. 
the story unravels in its, I think, a wonderful definition of sin, completely being catastrophic. But he talks about a catastrophe of one that is indeed a tragedy, but it yields a beneficial effect for us. It pierces us with even tears and joy, even though there's a sense in which it's horrible. Um, and I think that that is the best way to describe what Jesus did in substituting himself for us. John Stott says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, and God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts the penalties which belong to man alone. If the greatest catastrophe in human history is man substituting himself for God, the greatest you catastrophe is God substituting himself for man and putting himself where only man deserves to be. That he took all the curses, took all the penalties, so that we could have all the blessings which belong to him alone. But it's not just his final sacrifice that is substituted for us. It's not just that he bore that eternal weight of penalty and judgment that we deserve. But it's even in his life. He lived the perfect sinless life and succeeded in all the ways we failed. He showed perfect faith even now while we are plagued with faithlessness. He showed perfect love in contrast to the way we even withhold love. He showed perfect obedience in light of our disobedience. And that perfect obedience is given to us. And when God sees us, he sees Christ's record. He sees Christ's life in us. He sees that record credited to us. That he views us perfectly, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And then we see um, the final aspect where it talks about Christ sitting down. He sat down at the right hand of God. In the Old Testament, all the sacrifices in the temple were perpetual. They were always happening because none of them could truly atone for our sins. But when it says he sat down and it flushes us out later in Hebrews, he's saying that this sacrifice is final. It would not have to be repeated. But he still continues this work of being a priest for us in terms of his ascension. Um, And in Romans 8, is a great place where it talks about God interceding for us. It's not like he just walked up to us and said, all right, your sins are forgiven, now good luck, go get him, tiger. No, he's still engaged in our lives. He's still very personally involved in it. In Romans 8, it talks about both the Spirit and the Son interceding for us. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know... Uh, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then later on in Romans eight thirty four, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think about what that means. The entire Godhead is for you, is personally engaged with your life, is looking after you, is praying for you, is concerned about you, loves you, 
and wants to communicate that to you. It's overwhelming. He is so relentless in his love, in his pursuit of you, that he became the best prophet, the best priest, and the best king. Now, one of the things that marks Christ's kingship is this sense of control. And it talks about it here in verse 2, that he created the world. Verse 3, that he pulls the universe and that he is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus himself is both so intimately involved, not only in our lives, but with this world. That he cares about this world, that he created it, he is sustaining it, and that he is redeeming this world. And one of the most intimate ways that he does this is through his presence. The presence of God is the greatest blessing throughout the Bible. Um, And you see it as this beautiful woven mosaic all throughout the storyline of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with man. During the time of the wilderness, God dwelled with the people of Israel in the tabernacle. And then later on, as they were an established nation, he was with them in the temple. But then the exile happened. The temple was destroyed. And then even when the people returned from Babylon in the exile and they reconstructed the temple, God's glory wasn't there. They were in a sense, even though they were back from geographical exile, they were still very much in theological exile. And in Matthew's gospel, he picks up on this, and he has this Emmanuel theme, the presence of God with us, both at the very beginning, when it's talked about how the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. But then at the very end of the book, in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us that, lo, I am with you always to the end of the ages. Jesus is with us. We have the presence of God. We have the Spirit of God with us. And that is one of the greatest blessings we have, that the King of the universe is with us, that he cares for us, and that he comforts us. And that's a promise that's for us today. And that's the amazing thing, that when we look at the descending work of Christ, we see how subversive it is. It should stir our affections should soften our hearts. It should give us comfort in moments where we can't see it. That he fulfills every single one of these works in a descending way. That the greatest prophet ever didn't just point to revelation, but he became the object of revelation. That the greatest priest ever didn't just offer a sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. That the greatest king ever came to serve and to save. He achieved the greatest victory by letting death and evil do its best to him, and he overcame it in the resurrection. And that is the king that we put our trust in. And that to put trust in this king is to put trust in this priest who gives full forgiveness, is to put trust in this prophet who fully reveals God to us so that we know the love of God. We know how much he loves us and cares for us, and seeks after us. That ultimately he entered human history and even experienced the full weight of pain and tragedy so that we know that at the very end he will make everything right. That he is transforming this world even now in ways that we gather, even through worship. That all the elements even of this worship transform us as both individuals and communities that we come together in acceptance at the Lord's table, 
that we learn how to be a generous people through the giving of tithes and offerings, that we come together as a humble people knowing that we are broken and vulnerable and are still plagued with sin even though we are forgiven and that the kingdom is going out when we do even simple subversive acts like those, that he came to us, he reveals to us, he purifies us, and he intercedes us. And that's why it's amazing that when we look at the descending glory of God in this child who comes to us, it is indeed the greatest gift this world could ever have. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you ultimately sent the word. Jesus, your son, to be the fullest expression of revelation that we could ever need. That we know that when we are beholding him, we are beholding God himself. That he is indeed the greatest priest ever who made the greatest sacrifice so that we could be eternally accepted with him. And that he is indeed the greatest king who seeks out those marginalized, those hurt, those broken, and indeed saves them and is with them. Lord, give us comfort as we look to your son. Give us comfort as we still live in a world that is still catastrophic and know that ultimately that the cross itself was the greatest catastrophe in history. And we pray these things in your most precious name.